Chapter 15 of The Lost Stradivarius. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ralph Snelson. The Lost Stradivarius by John Meade Faulkner. Chapter 15. The next morning my health and strength were entirely restored to me, but my brother, on the contrary, seemed weak and exhausted from his efforts of the previous night. Our return journey to the Villa de Angelis had passed in complete silence. I had been too much perturbed to question him on the many points relating to the strange events as to which I was still completely in the dark, and he, on his side, had shown no desire to afford me any further information. When I saw him the next morning, he exhibited signs of great weakness, and in response to an effort on my part to obtain some explanation of the discovery of Adrian Temple's body, avoided an immediate reply, promising to tell me all he knew after our return to Worth Maltravers. I pondered over the last terrifying episode very frequently in my own mind, and as I thought more deeply of it all, it seemed to me that the outlines of some evil history were piece by piece developing themselves, that I had almost within my grasp the clue that would make all plain, and that had eluded me so long. In that dim story, Adrian Temple, the music of the Gagliarda, my brother's fatal passion for the violin, all seemed to have some mysterious connection and to have conspired in working John's mental and physical ruin. Even the Stradivarius violin bore a part in the tragedy, becoming, as it were, an actively malignant spirit, though I could not explain how, and was yet entirely unaware of the manner in which it had come into my brother's possession. I found that John was still resolved on an immediate return to England. His weakness, it is true, led me to entertain doubts as to how he would support so long a journey. But at the same time I did not feel justified in using any strong efforts to dissuade him from his purpose. I reflected that the more wholesome air and associations of England would certainly reinvigorate both body and mind, and that any extra strain brought about by the journey would soon be repaired by the comforts and watchful care with which we could surround him at Worth Maltravers. So the first week in October saw us once more with our faces set towards England. A very comfortable swinging bed or hammock had been arranged for John in the travelling carriage, and we determined to avoid fatigue as much as possible by dividing our journey into very short stages. My brother seemed to have no intention of giving up the Villa de Angelis. It was left complete with its luxurious furniture, and with all his servants under the care of an Italian, Maggiore du Homo. I felt that as John's state of health forbade his entertaining any hope of an immediate return thither, it would have been much better to close entirely his Italian house. But his great weakness made it impossible for him to undertake the effort such a course would involve and even if my own ignorance of the Italian tongue had not stood in the way, I was far too eager to get my invalid back to Worth to feel inclined to import any further delay, while I should myself adjust matters which were, after all, comparatively trifling. As Parnham was now ready to discharge his usual duties of valet, and as my brother seemed quite content that he should do so, Raphael was, of course, to be left behind, 
the boy had quite won my heart by his sweet manners combined with his evident affection to his master and in making him understand that he was now to leave us i offered him a present of a few pounds as a token of my esteem he refused however to touch this money and shed tears when he learned that he was to be left in italy and begged with many protestations of devotion that he might be allowed to accompany us to england my heart was not proof against his entreaties supported by so many signs of attachment and it was agreed therefore that he should at least attend us as far as worth maltravers john showed no surprise at the boy being with us indeed i never thought it necessary to explain that i had originally purposed to leave him behind our journey though necessarily prolonged by the shortness of its stages was safely accomplished john bore it as well as i could have hoped and though his body showed no signs of increased vigor his mind i think improved in tone at any rate for a time from the evening on which he had shown me the terrible discovery in the via del giardino he seemed to have laid aside something of his care and depression he now exhibited little trace of the moroseness and selfishness which had of late so marred his character and though he naturally felt severely at times the fatigue of travel yet we had no longer to dread any relapse into that state of lethargy or stupor which had so often baffled every effort to counteract it at posilipo some feeling of superstitious aversion had prompted me to give orders that the stradivarius violin should be left behind at posilipo but before parting my brother asked for it and insisted that it should be brought with him though i had never heard him play a note on it for many weeks he took an interest in all the petty episodes of travel and certainly appeared to derive more entertainment from the journey than was to have been anticipated in his feeble state of health to the incidents of the evening spent in the via del giardino he made no allusion of any kind nor did i for my part wish to renew memories of so unpleasant a nature his only reference occurred one sunday evening as we were passing a small graveyard near genoa the scene apparently turned his thoughts to that subject and he told me that he had taken measures before leaving naples to ensure that the remains of adrian temple should be decently interred in the cemetery of santa bibiana his words set me thinking again and unsatisfied curiosity prompted me strongly to inquire of him how he had convinced himself that the skeleton at the foot of the stairs was indeed that of adrian temple but i restrained myself partly from a reliance on his promise that he would one day explain the whole story to me and partly being very reluctant to mar the enjoyment of the peaceful scenes through which we were passing by the introduction of any subject so jarring and painful as those to which i have alluded we reached london at last and here we stopped a few days to make some necessary arrangements before going down to worth maltravers i had urged upon john during the journey that immediately on his arrival in london he should obtain the best english medical advice as to his own health though he at first demurred saying that nothing more was to be done and that he was perfectly satisfied with the medicine given him by dr baravelli which he continued to take yet by constant entreaty i prevailed upon him to accede to so reasonable a request 
Dr. Frobisher considered at that time the first living authority on diseases of the brain and nerves, saw him on the morning after our arrival. He was good enough to speak with me at some length after seeing my brother, and to give me many hints and recipes whereby I might be better enabled to nurse the invalid. Sir John's condition, he said, was such as to excite serious anxiety. There was indeed no brain mischief of any kind to be discovered, but his lungs were in a state of advanced disease, and there were signs of grave heart affection. Yet he did not bid me to despair, but said that with careful nursing life might certainly be prolonged, and even some measure of health in time restored. He asked me more than once if I knew of any trouble or worry that preyed upon Sir John's mind. Were there financial difficulties? Had he been subjected to any mental shock? Had he received any severe fright? To all this I could only reply in the negative. At the same time I told Dr. Frobisher as much of John's history as I considered pertinent to the question. He shook his head gravely and recommended that Sir John should remain for the present in London under his own constant supervision. To this, of course, my brother would by no means consent. He was eager to proceed at once to his own house, saying that if necessary we could return again to London for Christmas. It was therefore agreed that we should go down to Worth Maltravers at the end of the week. Parnham had already left us for Worth, in order that he might have everything ready against his master's return and when we arrived we found all in perfect order for our reception. A small morning-room next to the library, with a pleasant south aspect, and opening on to the terrace, had been prepared for my brother's use, so that he might avoid the fatigue of mounting stairs, which Dr. Frobisher considered very prejudicial in his present condition. We had also purchased in London a chair fitted with wheels, which enabled him to be moved, or, if he were feeling equal to the exertion, to move himself, without difficulty, from room to room. His health, I think, improved, very gradually, it is true, but still sufficiently to inspire me with hope that he might yet be spared to us. Of the state of his mind or thoughts I knew little, but I could see that he was at times a prey to nervous anxiety. This showed itself in the harassed look which his pale face often wore, and in his marked dislike to being left alone. He derived, I think, a certain pleasure from the quietude and monotony of his life at Worth, and perhaps also from the consciousness that he had about him loving and devoted hearts. I say hearts, for every servant at Worth was attached to him, remembering the great consideration and courtesy of his earlier years, and grieving to see his youthful and once vigorous frame reduced to so sad a strait. Books he never read himself, and even the charm of Raphael's reading seemed to have lost its power, though he never tired of hearing the boy sing, and liked to have him sit by his chair even when his eyes were shut and he was apparently asleep. His general health seemed to me to change but little, either for better or worse. Dr. Frobisher had led me to expect some such a sequel. I had not concealed from him that I had at times entertained suspicions as to my brother's sanity, but he had assured me that they were totally unfounded, that Sir John's brain was as clear as his own. At the same time he confessed that he could not account for the exhausted vitality of his patient, 
a condition which he would under ordinary circumstances have attributed to excessive study or severe trouble. He had urged upon me the pressing necessity for complete rest and for much sleep. My brother never even incidentally referred to his wife, his child, or to Mrs. Temple, who constantly wrote to me from Royston, sending kind messages to John, and asking how he did. These messages I never dared to give him, fearing to agitate him or retard his recovery by diverting his thoughts into channels which must necessarily be of a painful character, that he should never even mention her name or that of Lady Maltravers led me to wonder sometimes if one of those curious freaks of memory which occasionally accompany a severe illness had not entirely blotted out from his mind the recollection of his marriage and of his wife's death. He was unable to consider any affairs of business, and the management of the estate remained as it had done for the last two years in the hands of our excellent agent, Mr. Baker. But one evening, in the early part of December, he sent Raphael about nine o'clock, saying he wished to speak to me. I went to his room, and without any warning he began at once. You never show me my boy now, Sophie. He must be grown a big child, and I should like to see him. Much startled by so unexpected a remark, I replied that the child was at Royston under the care of Mrs. Temple but that I knew that if it pleased him to see Edward, she would be glad to bring him down to Worth. He seemed gratified with this idea, and begged me to ask her to do so, desiring that his respect should be at the same time conveyed to her. I almost ventured at that moment to recall his lost wife to his thoughts, by saying that his child resembled her strongly, for your likeness at that time, and even now, my dear Edward, to your poor mother was very marked but my courage failed me, and his talk soon reverted to an earlier period, comparing the mildness of the month to that of the first winter which we spent at Eton. His thoughts, however, must, I fancy, have returned for a moment to the days when he first met your mother, for he suddenly asked, Where is Gaskell? Why does he never come to see me? This brought quite a new idea to my mind. I fancied it might do my brother much good to have by him so sensible and true a friend as I knew Mr. Gaskell to be. The latter's address had fortunately not slipped from my memory, and I put all scruples aside and wrote by the next mail to him, setting forth my brother's sad condition, saying that I had heard John mention his name, and begging him on my own account to be so good as to help us if possible, and come to us in this hour of trial. Though he was so far off as Westmoreland, Mr. Gaskell's generosity brought him at once to our aid, and within a week he was installed at Worth Maltravers, sleeping in the library, where we had arranged a bed at his own desire, so that he might be near his sick friend. His presence was of the utmost assistance to us all. He treated John at once with the tenderness of a woman, and the firmness of a clever and strong man. They sat constantly together in the mornings, and Mr. Gaskell told me John had not shown with him the same reluctance to talk freely of his married life as he had discovered with me. The tenor of his communications I cannot guess, nor did I ever ask, but I knew that Mr. Gaskell was much affected by them. John even amused himself now at times by having Mr. Baker into his rooms of a morning that the management of the estate might be discussed with his friend, 
and he also expressed his wish to see the family solicitor, as he desired to draw his will. Thinking that any diversion of this nature could not but be beneficial to him, we sent to Dorster for our solicitor, Mr. Jeffreys, who together with his clerk spent three nights at Worth, and drew up a testament for my brother. So time went on, and the year was drawing to a close. It was Christmas Eve, and I had gone to bed shortly after twelve o'clock, having an hour earlier bid good-night to John and Mr. Gaskell. The long habit of watching with or being in charge of an invalid at night had made my ears extraordinarily quick to apprehend even the slightest murmur. It must have been, I think, near three in the morning, when I found myself awake and conscious of some unusual sound. It was low and far off, but I knew instantly what it was, and felt a choking sensation of fear and horror, as if an icy hand had gripped my throat on recognizing the air of the Gagliarda. It was being played on the violin, and a long way off, but I knew that tune too well to permit of my having any doubt on the subject. Any trouble or fear becomes, as you will some day learn, my dear nephew, immensely intensified and exaggerated at night. It is so, I suppose, because our nerves are in an excited condition, and our brain not sufficiently awake to give a due account of our foolish imaginations. I have myself many times lain awake wrestling in thought with difficulties which in the hours of darkness seemed insurmountable, but with the dawn resolved themselves into merely trivial inconveniences. So on this night, as I sat up in bed looking into the dark with the sound of that melody in my ears, it seemed as if something too terrible for words had happened, as though the evil spirit which we had hoped was exorcised had returned with others sevenfold more wicked than himself, and taken up his abode again with my lost brother. The memory of another night rushed to my mind when Constance had called me from my bed at Royston, and we had stolen together down the moonlit passages with the lilt of that wicked music vibrating on the still summer air. Poor Constance! She was in her grave now, yet her troubles at least were over. But here, as by some bitter irony, instead of carol or sweet symphony, it was the Gagliarda that woke me from my sleep on Christmas morning. I flung my dressing-gown about me, and hurried through the corridor and down the stairs which led to the lower story in my brother's room. As I opened my bedroom door, the violin ceased suddenly in the middle of a bar. Its last sound was not a musical note, but rather a horrible scream, such as I pray I may never hear again. It was a sound such as a wounded beast might utter. There is a picture I have seen of Blake's showing the soul of a strong, wicked man leaving his body at death. The spirit is flying out through the window with awful staring eyes, aghast at the desolation into which it is going. If in the agony of dissolution such a lost soul could utter a cry, it would, I think, sound like the wail which I heard from the violin that night. Instantly all was in absolute stillness. The passages were silent and ghostly in the faint light of my candle, but as I reached the bottom of the stairs I heard the sound of other footsteps, and Mr. Gaskell met me. He was fully dressed, and had evidently not been to bed. He took me kindly by the hand and said, I feared you might be alarmed by the sound of music. John has been walking in his sleep. 
He had taken out his violin and was playing on it in a trance. Just as I reached him, something in it gave way, and the discord caused by the slackened strings roused him at once. He is awake now and has returned to bed. Control your alarm for his sake and your own. It is better that he should not know you have been awakened. He pressed my hand and spoke a few more reassuring words, and I went back to my room still much agitated and yet feeling half ashamed for having shown so much anxiety with so little reason. That Christmas morning was one of the most beautiful that I ever remember. It seemed as though summer was so loath to leave our sunny Dorset coast that she came back on this day to bid us adieu before her final departure. I had risen early and had partaken of the sacrament at our little church. Dr. Butler had recently introduced this early service, and though any alteration of time-honored customs in such matters might not otherwise have met with my approval, I was glad to avail myself of the privilege on this occasion, as I wished in any case to spend the later morning with my brother. The singular beauty of the early hours and the tranquilizing effect of the solemn service brought back serenity to my mind, and effectually banished from it all memories of the preceding night. Mr. Gaskell met me in the hall on my return, and after greeting me kindly with the established compliments of the day, inquired after my health, and hoped that the disturbance of my slumber on the previous night had not affected me injuriously. He had good news for me. John seemed decidedly better, was already dressed, and desired, as it was Christmas morning, that we would take our breakfast with him in his room. To this, as you may imagine, I readily assented. Our breakfast party passed off with much content, and even with some quiet humor. John, sitting in his easy chair at the head of the table, and wishing us the compliments of the season, I found laid in my place a letter from Mrs. Temple, greeting us all, for she knew Mr. Gaskell was at Worth, and saying that she hoped to bring little Edward to us at the new year. My brother seemed much pleased at the prospect of seeing his son, and though perhaps it was only imagination, I fancied he was particularly gratified that Mrs. Temple herself was to pay us a visit. She had not been to Worth since the death of Lady Maltravers. Before we had finished breakfast, the sun beat on the panes with an unusual strength and brightness. His rays cheered us all, and it was so warm that John first opened the windows, and then wheeled his chair on to the walk outside. Mr. Gaskell brought him a hat and mufflers, and we sat with him on the terrace basking in the sun. The sea was still and glassy as a mirror, and the channel lay stretched before us like a floor of moving gold. A rose or two still hung against the house, and the sun's rays reflected from the red sandstone gave us a December morning more mild and genial than many June days that I have known in the north. We sat for some minutes without speaking, immersed in our reflections and in the exquisite beauty of the scene. The stillness was broken by the bells of the parish church ringing for the morning service. There were two of them, and their sound, familiar to us from childhood, seemed like the voices of old friends. John looked at me and said with a sigh, I should like to go to church. It is long since I was there. You and I have always been on Christmas morning, Sophie, and Constance would have wished it had she been with us. His words, so unexpected and tender, filled my eyes with tears, not tears of grief, 
but of deep thankfulness to see my loved one turning once more to the old ways. It was the first time I had heard him speak of Constance, and that sweet name with the infinite pathos of her death, and of the spectacle of my brother's weakness, so overcame me that I could not speak. I only pressed his hand and nodded. Mr. Gaskell, who had turned away for a minute, said he thought John would take no harm in attending the morning service, provided the church were warm. On this point I could reassure him, having found it properly heated even in the early morning. Mr. Gaskell was to push John's chair, and I ran off to put on my cloak, with my heart full of profound thankfulness for the signs of returning grace so mercifully vouchsafed to our dear sufferer on this happy day. I was ready dressed, and had just entered the library, when Mr. Gaskell stepped hurriedly through the window from the terrace. "'John has fainted,' he said. "'Run for some smelling salts, and call Parnham.' There was a scene of hurried alarm, giving place ere long to a terrified despair. Parnham mounted a horse, and set off at a wild gallop to Swanage to fetch Dr. Bruton. But an hour before he returned, we knew the worst. My brother was beyond the aid of the physician.' His wrecked life had reached a sudden term. I have now, dear Edward, completed the brief narrative of some of the facts attending the latter years of your father's life. The motive which has induced me to commit them to writing has been a double one. I am anxious to give effect as far as may be to the desire expressed most strongly to Mr. Gaskell by your father that you should be put in possession of these facts on your coming of age and for my part I think it better that you should thus hear the plain truth from me, lest you should be at the mercy of haphazard reports, which might at any time reach you from ignorant or interested sources. Some of the circumstances were so remarkable that it is scarcely possible to suppose that they were not known, and most probably frequently discussed in so large an establishment as that of Worth Maltravers. I even have reason to believe that exaggerated and absurd stories were current at the time of Sir John's death, and I should be grieved to think that such foolish tales might by any chance reach your ear without your having any sure means of discovering where the truth lay. God knows how grievous it has been to me to set down on paper some of the facts that I have here narrated. You, as a dutiful son, will reverence the name even of a father whom you never knew but you must remember that his sister did more. She loved him with a single-hearted devotion, and it still grieves her to the quick to write anything which may seem to detract from his memory. Only, above all things, let us speak the truth. Much of what I have told you needs, I feel, further explanation, but this I cannot give, for I do not understand the circumstances." Mr. Gaskell, your guardian, will, I believe, add to this account a few notes of his own, which may tend to elucidate some points, as he is in possession of certain facts of which I am still ignorant. End of chapter 15